Hey there, good morning to our Stories online campus. I'm so glad you're here. Um, if you're at home today or if you're traveling, wherever this morning finds you, you're part of the story just by virtue of the fact that you're tuning in uh, for today's message. So thank you for being here. And uh, I wanna share with you some exciting news. Next Sunday, um, we, are, uh, we are so thrilled to be back to uh, uh, live streaming Sunday morning um, services and the message. So starting next Sunday, you'll have the live message from Sunday here in our, um, in our new campus in the museum district here in Houston. So um, one little programming note is that our 8.30 online service will be going away. So you'll wanna make plans to tune in for 9.45 or 11 um, to catch that live experience. And I know that means a lot to many of you. I've heard from you that it's just, not being the same with the re-recordings, and I totally get it. It's not quite the same for me either, um, but but I'm I'm so glad we're getting back to this, and, and next Sunday will be the day for that. And so I want to thank our team, um, uh, Brian Edwards, and the the media crew that makes these uh, these things happen. Uh, so much work goes into that, and so it's a huge step for us. So be sure to tune in um, next Sunday for that uh, for that reintroduction of our live stream Sunday experience. All right, so today our task is to wrap up a series uh, that we've been uh, in the midst of for three weeks now. Uh, it's called In Search of a Soulmate. It is a series that's all about um, romance, relationships, sex, dating, marriage, all of that. And two weeks ago, we started the series by talking primarily about singleness and dating. And then last Sunday, I talked a little bit about friendship and the importance of friendship in the context of singleness and marriage and uh, how friendship's really the seedbed of true lasting romance. And today I'm gonna talk more pointedly uh, to, to people that are married or maybe soon to be married or one day you'll be married. Like I think, I think there's some wisdom in this message for everyone regardless of your current marital status, but I'm gonna be talking especially to people who are in the thick of it now, <laughs> people that are married and, uh, and facing the challenges that, that marriage, you know, naturally brings uh, with it. So, um, you know, sometimes I think we can downplay the importance of marriage um, because we want to be always inclusive and thoughtful about the fact that most people that go to church here are not married. And, and sometimes we can be so hyper pro-marriage that we exclude people from the life of the church. And I, I wanna avoid that at all costs. But I also don't wanna downplay or diminish the importance of marriage because marriage is historically, socially, um, biblically, an incredibly important bedrock in our lives. You know, marriage plays a huge role <laughs> In so many of our lives, obviously, that, that you know, I, I think it's important for us to talk about, uh, about it. Now, it's not everything. It's not the only thing, you know. Um, it's just a really important thing <laughs> for many people. And the Bible makes this clear. Throughout the Bible, marriage is a, is a recurring theme. And it's God's idea. It's not like people came up with it and God just put up with it. God instituted the, the whole idea of marriage between Adam and Eve, the first two people. They came together as husband and wife, and then the Bible tells stories of one marriage after another, some good, some bad, most of them a mixed bag of both good and bad. And, and then it culminates, the story culminates with this notion or this thought of Jesus as the bridegroom and the church as his bride and the book of Revelation really climaxes at the end of the, of the Bible with this image of, 
of the bridegroom coming to claim his bride. So the Bible starts with a wedding and ends with a wedding. And so we shouldn't diminish the role of weddings and marriage in our lives today and, and what those things mean. And, and you know, the, the, the Bible says things like Proverbs 31, an excellent wife who can find she's more precious than jewels. Or Proverbs 20 says that a woman who finds a faithful husband has found a blessing from God. And then there's passages like 1 Corinthians 7, 14, that seem to suggest that an unbelieving spouse can be sanctified or saved through their believing spouse. And that's mysterious on the surface of it. What are we saying? That you don't have to believe in your own right to to go to heaven, you can just marry a Christian and you're good. I'm not sure that's exactly what it means, but I have seen cases where a faithful spouse loves someone who's not faithful in the sense that they don't have faith in God or an active, vibrant relationship with God. And when they stick it out together over time, that other spouse is so overcome by the love of God they experience through their spouse in their marriage that their eyes are open to the, the source of that love. And their life is changed because of it. I've seen cases where husbands are brought to their knees by the love of God shown to them through their spouse their wife. And I've seen cases where women, wives are, are overcome, their hearts once hardened or softened by the, the sacrificial kind of love they experience from their believing husband. And so yes, marriage has that kind of power to it. God can use marriages um, that, uh, to, to, to change us, to save us even. That's powerful. Now I've also seen the other side of it where this is painful to talk about, where people give up on a marriage too soon, in my estimation, and walk away from the covenant that they made with God and each other. Um, and I've seen the kind of trails of destruction and unintended consequences that they often leave in their wake. So all of this is to say we should talk about this topic because marriage is a weighty mysterious matter. It is, um, it, it is truly a, a holy institution established by God for the purposes that are higher than many of us can imagine. And then if you're married today, I know sometimes it can feel like you're barely hanging on. And sometimes it can feel like it's not worth it or something's not right about your marriage. I want to tell you and encourage you to believe that your marriage is something holy, even in its current state. And it is worth fighting for. And what I want to do today is try to equip you with tools or maybe spiritual weapons with which you can fight for your marriage. And I know there are some people who are at your wit's end in your marriage and you feel like all hope is lost. It's not. It doesn't have to be. And I hope that today's message uh, equips you in some way to see things a little different and have a little bit more of a renewed hope for the future of your marriage. So I'm going to talk about three things today, the, the three ways that you can strengthen a marriage that needs strengthening. And the first weapon to consider in the fight for the life of your marriage um, is your clothing. <laughs> All right, I'm going to explain, I promise. And the first question that goes along with this 
with this idea is a question I think every married person should be willing to ask themselves and each other, and that is this, what are you wearing, okay? <laughs> now, it's not what it sounds like. I don't give that kind of advice. It's not this kind of sermon, okay? So it's not as creepy or weird as it sounds, um, but I know it's probably not what you expected to hear. But your clothing matters. Your, what you're wearing matters in your marriage. Now, I don't mean what you're actually wearing on your back when your spouse comes home from work. You can, you can look up that advice in uh, some other publication somewhere, okay? What I'm talking about is letting God redress your marriage. Letting God give you something else to put on when you're at home with your spouse and letting him dress your marriage with his love and protection. That's what I'm talking about. So Genesis chapter three, we've sort of camped out in for a while now in our messages recently, and it tells the story of when all hell broke loose after even Adam had, had enjoyed this perfect communion with God in the Garden of Eden, and they, they screwed it up. They lost their way. They took the forbidden fruit. They acted selfishly, and the moment they did, they lost that innocence that they had enjoyed, and the intimacy that they had with God was fractured and they started lying to God and hiding from God and running from God. And the minute that they did that, suddenly their vulnerability became a problem. Their nakedness became gross to them after they sinned. And so they were ashamed of their private parts, which until that moment had not been private or any more private than any of the other parts. But in that moment, shame entered in and they decided to cover up their privates with fig leaves that they must have knit together with a strand of Eve's hair. That's the only thing I can think of that must have been available to them, okay? So they made this underwear for themselves using these fig leaves. And, and I can't imagine that they knew how to make underwear. No one had ever made underwear. So we can only assume that that underwear was pathetic and ridiculous, that it didn't really cover everything that it was supposed to cover and that it just looked Silly. Now, how do you imagine that those raggedy leaf briefs <laughs> made Adam and Eve feel about themselves? What kind of emotions do you think they felt when they looked at each other in what they were wearing? Every time they saw each other wearing those ridiculous clothes, they were reminded of their past and particularly of their mistakes and their shame. Every time they saw each other, they were reminded of the worst stuff that they had done, and the shame came rushing back. Now, Genesis 3 is a dark and depressing story in some ways, but as with all the dark, depressing stories in the Bible, there are rays of hope that break through, like in Genesis 3.21, where a few weeks ago we read this passage. I'm just struck by how awesome this little nondescript part of the story is. After they had made themselves those silly leaf underwear, in verse 21, it says, the Lord God saw them and made garments of skin for Adam and his wife Eve and clothed them. God clothed them with something new, not fig leaves, just haphazardly woven together with a strand of hair, but real clothes that would stand the test of time and protect them 
and that wouldn't make them ashamed when they saw each other, but clothes that would instead remind them every time they laid eyes on each other, not of their screw-ups, but of God's protection and provision and forgiveness and his patience. Every time they saw each other from that day on, that's what their clothes reminded them of. Not how bad things are, but how everything would be okay because God was a part of their marriage, their union. And listen, God wants the same for every marriage. He wants the same for every one of us. If you're married, God wants the same assurance for your marriage today, no matter how bad it's gotten or how ashamed you are or how silly you've looked trying to cover your tracks and how hard it is to look at each other. God wants to restore you. You've probably made some mistakes in your marriage if you've been married for any length of minutes. <laughs> you've probably messed up. It doesn't take long for reality to set in. Your marriage probably isn't what you thought it once would be. And you've probably even been ashamed of some of the things that you've said and done or some of the things your spouse has said and done. And it might even be the case that every time you lay eyes on each other, you're just reminded of that sordid past and the shame comes rushing back. That doesn't mean it's over. It doesn't mean your marriage is done. God can take off those old clothes. God can take off the shame and give your marriage something new to wear. And when he does, it will change how you feel, not only about yourself, but how you feel about your spouse. So if you are married, the question is, what are you and your spouse wearing around the house? Is it old clothes of resentment and rage and regret? If it is, then I want you to know God can give you something new and something so much better to wear, something that reminds you of his patience instead of your past. Which brings us to the second thing I'm going to talk about, the second weapon in the fight to strengthen your marriage, and that is character. New clothes lead to a new character. And the question that goes along with this is, who are you becoming? If you have a Bible at home, you can open it up as I read this passage. It's from the book of Colossians, which is in the New Testament, one of Paul's letters. Colossians chapter 3. And I'm going to start in verse 12. And Paul writes um, in 3, verse 12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive each other if any of you has a grievance against someone, which happens in marriage. I don't know if you've noticed <laughs> the grievances. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love. This is clothing talk. Put on love like a shirt. Put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So Paul says, clothe yourselves in something new. Clothe yourselves in patience, kindness, gentleness, humility, compassion. And when you put on these clothes, he is suggesting that the craziest thing happens to you. The longer you wear those clothes, the more you begin to change. So it's like wearing these clothes for long enough makes you live up to them. 
in a way. And in this way, God covers us with himself until we become like him within. It is an outside-in kind of change that, that Paul is proposing here, all right? Maybe you've heard someone say, dress not for the job you have, but for the job you want. Remember, you've probably heard someone say, dress for success, right? And, and this, this suggests that if you dress a certain way, you'll feel a certain way about yourself. And when you feel a certain way about yourself for long enough, you'll change the way you behave toward others. Dress for success, you'll have a better chance at success. My grandma used to say that it's important every day to wear fresh underwear. She used to say that fresh underwear just meant clean underwear for my granny. And uh, she used to say you have to wear clean underwear every day because you never know if this day might be your last. You might die in a fiery crash, she would say. And I remember being a kid <laughs> trying to process all of this information that granny was given me, um, trying to think through the implications of what she was saying with my little kid brain. And so I just kept thinking to myself, I remember thinking, so granny, when you die, they look through your underwear? <laughs> like, like adding insult to injury. Like, like they see your underwear when you die. Is that what you're saying, grandma? That's not, it's not exactly what she meant, okay? What she's saying is when you, when you dress with new clothes, clean clothes, um, clothes that don't, that, that, that don't uh, bear the stench of the past, she would say, <laughs> then you feel like a new person, like a new man. You feel different about yourself, and it will eventually change who you are to those around you. In other words, your clothing affects your character. And this is a spiritual reality that Paul and the first Christians knew very well. Listen, when Paul wrote this in Colossians 3, everyone in the first church uh, in the first generation church there, knew what he meant. He was talking specifically about baptism and what baptism represented. Because when a new believer decided to get baptized, they would literally, at the ceremony, take off their old clothes. And whatever they came to Jesus wearing was no longer suitable because all those old clothes symbolized that old self and, and, and the Holy Spirit has put that old self to death. So why keep wearing those same old clothes? So they would strip off the clothes, they would get down into the baptism waters, and then they would come up out of the baptism waters, a new person, Person, a new man, a new woman. And then it would be given new clothes to symbolize that newness, fresh, white, pure clothes to symbolize what God has just done within their heart, putting to death the old person and, and resurrecting someone new. Okay? That's the symbolism Paul is speaking to, and it should speak to us as well, because this is just who God consistently is and what God consistently does. He makes all things new, and he does it with individual believers, and he can do it with you, and believe it or not, he can do it with your marriage. That's what he does. That's what he does best. But to get there, you, it really takes you wrestling with honestly wrestling with the question, who have I become and who am I becoming as far as my marriage is concerned? Who am I becoming to my, who am I to my spouse? Day in and day out. And not, not, not who Instagram sees with your, like holding hands, looking happy, 
Who am I behind closed doors to my spouse? Am I gracious? Am I compassionate? Am I patient? Am I kind? Am I loving? Is that what I have on around the house? When my spouse comes home from work, is that what they see me wearing? Or am I wearing the old clothes of resentment? The old clothes of unforgiveness? Those old clothes that remind my spouse of the past instead of my patience and God's grace? Listen, uh, the gospel's call is to put on love every day. To put on love and to wear love around the house. And, and it's not an act. You ask God to help you put on these new clothes of love, not just so you can act like you love them, but because the longer you put those new clothes on, the more it becomes reality so that you're not just wearing love for your spouse anymore. You are love. You are loving. Love isn't what you're wearing, it's who you are. That's character formation. Okay? The, third, the third weapon and the final thing I'll talk about today in the fight for your marriage is something the Bible calls covenant. A covenant is specifically biblical and, and um, I guess, religious in nature. I know the world uses covenant language sometimes to describe contracts, um, and every covenant has an element of contract in it, but not every contract is a covenant. It's an important distinction. A covenant is a contract, but it has both legal and spiritual ramifications. It is an agreement between at least two parties, one of whom is God, and it, in, it is sealed, the deal is sealed, not by a signature or ink on paper or a notary public, it is sealed by a transfer of flesh and blood. Typically in the Bible, that's how covenants were sealed. And we see several different examples of this. The first covenant that's spoken of in the Bible is the marriage of Adam and Eve when God encouraged them to come together and to create one flesh and to fill the earth and multiply by becoming one flesh. And when they became one flesh, literally giving their flesh and blood to each other, their covenant was sealed in the eyes of God. And it was sealed for a lifetime. A few chapters later in Genesis, um, God proposed another covenant, this time with a man named Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, God said to Abraham, who was living a perfectly normal, comfortable life, leave your father's estate, take your wife with you, and just start walking out toward the desert. I'll meet you out in the middle of the desert. Just trust me. I'll find you there. And Abraham, being a man of great faith, did just that. And then God made another promise or another set of promises to Abraham over time. I will make you the father of many nations. I will give you more descendants than there are stars in the sky. Just meet me here. Just meet me there. Just trust me this far. And Abraham did at every turn. But over time, there there became a problem. Uh, You see, God's promise always had to do with progeny, with Abraham and Sarah becoming parents and and having descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Abraham and Sarah, however, had been together for a long time without children, fruitless, infertile. 
And some of you know exactly what that struggle is like. And in the ancient world, believe it or not, it was even, it was even more of a painful, isolating situation. People then oftentimes, most often, believed that the purpose of marriage was to have babies. And so if your marriage couldn't produce babies, what are you even married for? What is the purpose here? And what's astounding about the story of Abraham and Sarah and their covenant with God and how they trusted him and followed him is that 25 years passed after God first promised them children and they had none. God appeared to have reneged on his promise. And over those 25 years, Abraham and Sarah were partially faithful, but they also lost their way. They were human beings. And they started to doubt God or, or, or they started to take matters into their own hands even. Uh, Abraham and Sarah came up with a plan at one point to, to fulfill God's promise for God by letting Abraham impregnate another woman who wasn't his wife. I mean, they were desperate. And at one point we see their desperation coming through. This is one thing that happened as they were losing their way. In Genesis chapter 18, verses nine through 12, um, these visitors who were uh, angels sent by God asked uh, Abraham and Sarah, asked Abraham, where is your wife, Sarah? And he said, there in the tent. And then one of them said, I surely will return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife will have a son. And they were very old by this time, right? So Sarah had been listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. And Abraham and Sarah were already very old. And Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself. And I don't think it was a joyful laugh at this point in her journey. I think this was a cynical, whatever kind of laugh. And she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord Abraham is old, will I now have this pleasure? I hear cynicism dripping from Sarah's lips at this point in the story. But although they must have struggled with losing faith, they must have had questions, and I can only imagine that as time went on, Abraham and Sarah must have wondered if their mistakes and misgivings had caused God to, uh, to forsake his covenant, his promises, and must have caused them to wonder what their marriage was even for. Although all that is true, God never forgets his promises. And he never forsakes a covenant that he makes with his people. If you're married, you may have forgotten this, but on your wedding day, you made certain promises. And those were not just worldly legal promises. What you made that day was a covenant and not just with your spouse. You made a covenant that day together with God and God blessed that covenant and ratified that covenant the moment that the two of you became one flesh. Now, I know that it's easy um, it, it's easy to forget the, the sanctity of a moment like that, especially if you've been married for a while and the years go by and there's hard times and disappointments and doubts that creep in and you wonder, what's this marriage even for anymore? It's not what I thought marriage should be. And there's something, if we're honest, about the way that our world talks about love and romance and marriage and what it should be that really sets the whole enterprise up to fail. <laughs> 
And I can summarize that mentality so prevalent in the world as a soulmate philosophy or maybe a soulmate fallacy, which is basically the idea that there is a perfect person for you with whom you could be happily married forever, fully fulfilled, and them too. You fulfill them, they fulfill you, and your only purpose in life is to find them or, or let them find you, and then you get married and that's it. You're happy. But then you get married to someone that you thought was the one and you're not as happy as you thought you would be or as they said you should be, what then? How do we not then question, what are we doing in this marriage? What is this marriage for? If I'm not happy most of the time or some of the time and you're not happy, what are we, should we even be together? Listen, I know what the soulmate philosophy does to us and how it sets us up to fail. And um, I, I, I see people who enter into marriage hit that wall of disappointment. And I, I, I don't think it means there's something wrong with you. I don't think it means there's something wrong with your marriage. I think it means there's something wrong with our approach. And we need to, instead of giving up on our marriage, we need to give up on the lie of the soulmate philosophy that is born out in some of these, I can't believe how many people still believe in this uh, fantasy that there's just one perfect person out there that you have to find and be happy with, but there is. There's these memes like this one from Twitter that I found, your soulmate is one who understands, loves, and nourishes your flaws. Listen, Even if that were true, it would be the worst advice ever. Like find someone out there who will nourish your flaws, like so that your flaws get bigger (laughs) and worse. No, that's not what love is. But that's what we're led to believe, this kind of nonsensical, fantastic idea of romance, which is just false. Or this one said, I think think my soulmate might be blind. I guess this person was having trouble finding their one and only. But if you're out there, and then they wrote the rest of the message in Braille (laughs) on Twitter, which doesn't work. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) let me keep going. Uh, Then it says this other one. uh, This is the last one that I'll share, okay? uh, This person said, my soulmate probably is a Jehovah's Witness, and I just never opened the door. (laughs) You can have all these doubts creep in. What if I married the wrong person? And that's why we're struggling. Maybe we just made a mistake and maybe my true one and only is out there waiting for me to find them and here I am in this broke marriage. So I need to leave. I see this mentality breaking people up all the time. And Stanley Hauerwas is a professor who nailed this problem. Years ago, he said these words about marriage. I just want you to listen. I'm gonna put them on the screen as well. He wrote, destructive, to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes that marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy. And the assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. But that fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. (laughs) We never know whom we marry. We just think we do, or even If we marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. (laughs) The primary challenge of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. 
Every morning you wake up to someone who's a little bit different than they were the night before and to someone who's a lot different than they were on the day you pledged to be together forever until death do you part. So that soulmate philosophy will always leave you disappointed and often will leave you feeling isolated and alone. But the Bible offers us a vision of marriage that's so much better. Now it's harder, but it's better for us. And it's, and, and it's a better way to live in covenant together. The Bible offers us a covenant that is made before God and, and sealed by flesh and blood. And that kind of covenant isn't something that once it's let down, once you're disappointed in it, once it, it falls short, that it's just so easily walked away from or broken. There is an eternal kind of security in that kind of covenant because what a covenant means is that, and what's really beautiful about it is that once it's fractured, it can be restored like a bone that is broken. It comes back stronger if you let it, if you feed it and nourish it. God can restore that which is broken. Unlike a contract, which is rendered null and void once broken, a, co a covenant comes back strong as ever. Your marriage might feel broken today. And if it does, you're not alone. Everybody's does at certain points along the way. It might feel like all hope is lost, but when you said I do, however many years ago it was, you weren't just agreeing to a contract contingent upon your mutual happiness. You entered into a covenant that human sin, your sin, your shortcomings and theirs, your spouses, cannot cancel. A covenant that God blessed. And God, as the giver and blesser of that covenant, can restore it. The greatest example of covenant found in scripture or anywhere, really, is found in the New Testament when Jesus, on the same night that he would be arrested, betrayed by one of his followers, and taken off to stand trial for crimes he didn't commit, before all that, moments before all that happened, Jesus proposed a covenant with his followers, his church. And in this covenant, he said, here's, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to uh, be handed over. I'm going to be broken. My blood's going to be spilled and it's going to look like I'm, I'm a criminal on a cross. What's really happening is we are sealing our covenant. My, my covenant with you is sealed by my broken body and the blood that I'm going to spill. And this covenant will be everlasting. And every time you get together with other Christians, even if you're having a hard time loving them or loving me, our covenant remains. And every time you break bread together and, 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 and share the cup together, you are to remember what I have done for you and my love for you and how it never ends and it cannot be canceled by your sin. In fact, I've already overcome all of that. All you've got to do is come and trust and know that I can show you what love really looks like. And that's what he does for us. We don't gather at churches and put on our Sunday best because we're perfect or any better than anybody else. We gather to worship Jesus because we know how sinful we are and how far we've fallen. And yet his covenant with us remains intact and it can be restored. 
And if your marriage is feeling broken and hopeless or maybe even beyond repair, I just want you to know he can give you new clothes to wear. He can give you love to put on. And eventually, over time, that love that you put on day after day will become an in, internal heart love that you're not just wearing, it's who you are, toward your spouse. And that love will not only change you, but it will change them. I believe that by faith, that love of God, you show them through no merit of their own, will change them and you and your marriage. And every time that you share that kind of love with one another, you can be reminded of the reality that undergirds your union. And it's not a piece of paper. And it's, it's not a contract. It's not just a legal agreement. It's a covenant, blessed and established and redeemed by God again and again. He can restore you. And I encourage you not to give up hope not to give up the fight to strengthen your marriage because God makes all things new. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, thank you for your covenantal love that always uh, forgives, always heals, always restores. It's always patient and always kind. Show us how to love our spouses that way, those of us who are married. Show us all how to love one another that way. And Lord, for those who are married and maybe who are barely hanging on, if we're honest, and just the feelings gone, the spark left a long time ago, and the questions remain, what are we even doing here? What's this even for? Are we even right for each other? All those doubts, Lord, I, I speak a word of truth over them. Lord, I ask for your spirit to move in those marriages, to bring restoration, healing, and hope. That's our prayer today. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.